Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of the Joy and Infertility Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Porter, and my hope is that you will join me on this road of finding joy even in infertility. Today's interview is one that is unlike any you've heard on Joy and Infertility so far. Not only is our guest today our first international guest, Thelma and her husband live in Canada, but Thelma is our first guest whose story will not end with a child, at least not in the way that she planned. You see, a few months ago, I got a story submission from the website from Thelma, and the title of it was A Different Kind of Miracle. And I thought, oh cool, another adoption story. So I went on to read it, but as I read, I discovered what she meant, and this is what she said. I wanted to share a different kind of miracle with you, one that did not end with a miracle baby and won't. My husband and I are in the 5% of couples who will never go on to have children, and yet we have immense joy in our lives. Our miracle was the undeserved gift of peace and acceptance that could only come from our Heavenly Father. After reading that, I had to have her on to hear more about their journey, and I invite you to listen in, even though, as you will hear her say, this most likely will not be your story. Don't skip this episode because it's what you feel like is your worst fear, to end your journey with no children. Listen, because God was in the midst and is in the midst of her journey, just like he is in yours, the lessons she's learned through their journey will apply directly to you right now. And I think God is absolutely big enough to handle our anger. I think when we run into danger is when we make him the object of our anger. Because when he becomes the object of our anger, he can no longer be the source of our comfort and our hope and our joy because we will not go to the one we are angry at for those things. And so I think that if we can walk with caution in that, if we can bring our anger to him and say, Lord, I am so confused by my circumstances and I don't understand why this is happening. And then in that same moment, allow him to comfort us and allow him to be our source of strength our source of hope. I told you she's got some gold, guys. So let's get to my conversation with Thelma Nienheis. Hey, Thelma. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here. So you're my first guest outside of the U.S. You're from, is it, do we call you the Great White North? Is that what the the nickname is for Canada? (laughs) My, my friends from the U.S. call it the frozen tundra, so that's oh, fine. That's, great that's great White cooler. North works also. <laughs> <laughs> and it is frozen up there, you said. It is, yes. Winter has come. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself. All right. Well, my name's Thelma. I am Canadian. Um, I have been married to my husband, Len, for 15 years now. Uh, We were married on a very hot day in August of 2003, um, which led me to my number one advice for brides, which is wear sunscreen. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I burnt to a very, very bright red crisp. It was fantastic. So (laughs) That's like the last thing on your mind when you get ready for your wedding. Oh, I should put sunscreen on because I'm having an outdoor wedding. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to have my pictures outside and I'm realistically going to be in the sun for two to three hours. So yeah. Oh gosh. But despite that, uh, we have been happily married for 15 years and we live in Hamilton, Ontario with 
two little labradoodles and two rescue cats. So you guys have been married for, you said, 15 years? That's right. So tell us about the journey to build your family so far. Yeah, so um, it was interesting. I actually just had to kind of go back. It's been a bit of a time since we've been like actively pursuing parenthood. So I kind of had to go back to my blog and and re-sort out that timeline for myself because I was like, I don't remember when anything happened. So yeah, we were married in 2003. <clears throat> And we were both working at the time. We were both in good health. We, uh, When we got married, we were like, well, let's just be married for a while before we add any kids to the mix. Um, you know, that sort of year that you're going to take after marriage to just sort of get used to the idea before um, having kids. So we were both on board with that. Um, and then in January of... 2004, I found out that my office um, was going to be closing where I was working and they were going to centralize everything over to the West Coast. So I was going to be out of a job. I didn't have anything lined up. So we kind of looked at each other and said, you know what, let's just start now. It's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was, uh, yeah, I think we were just fairly naive, which we probably shouldn't have been. I mean, I'm the youngest of six, and um, one of my sisters had a great deal of trouble conceiving, and another of my sisters, while she didn't have trouble conceiving, had experienced multiple miscarriages. And this is all sort of before we ever started um trying to have our own family. So I probably shouldn't have been quite so naive to think that. It, so that was not in your, in your head at all. It wasn't. Um, I mean, oh, wow. I knew it was a possibility. I was, I was witnessing it firsthand in my own family. And yet I was like, well, of course this is going to happen. <laughs> and I remember going to the drugstore to buy um, our first home pregnancy test. And I remember being very confused about why there were two packs. Because I was honestly thinking, I'm like, well, you, take, you, only, need you only need one, right? That is, that is such, that is such a first timer question. <laughs> I'm like, why would you need two? Why are there two? <laughs> and it was, oh, it was funny because there was another young woman there and she was also buying and she reached for the two pack. And I had this moment where I was like, maybe I should ask her what? because she clearly what knows do I not something. Know? <laughs> she clearly knows something that I do not. Anyway, so I grabbed the one pack and, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> and then I went over into the baby aisle, um, you know, before the baby aisle becomes that aisle at the drugstore that you never walk down. Um, and I found this adorable little bib that said, I love my daddy in pink and purple letters. And I had it all sorted out in my mind. I was going to take the test in the morning and then I was going to crawl back into bed. I was going to put the little bib on his pillow. And that's how I was going to tell him. So you were just sure you just knew. I just knew I like, this was going to happen. This happens to people, right? Um, <clears throat> so I still have that bib and we have never used it. And I have since figured out, um, why pregnancy tests come into packs. <laughs> um, 
Um, so yeah, they don't come in large enough. No, I know. And then you get the ones at the dollar store and you're like, these can't possibly work. Um, (laughs) so yeah. So at that point we were like, okay, well, I guess, you know, maybe it's just a timing thing. It's, um, you know, we're not catching my cycle properly. So I don't think we really got to the point that we were like, you know what, maybe we need to check this out until towards the end of 2005. So probably about 18 months after we had decided, um, you know what, let's do this and have a baby. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to my doctor and my husband, Len, went to his doctor. And so, you know, just starting those initial tests, the ultrasounds, the blood work, the semen analysis. um, And that those took out the denial pretty quickly because, as it turned out, we had male and female factor infertility. Um, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, so I was very insulin resistant. I had multiple cysts on my ovaries. Um, Len had low motility and morphology issues. And at that point, we kind of looked at each other and said, oh, well, (laughs) all right then. So at that point, I was like, well, maybe we're just not supposed to get pregnant. And I launched straight into, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to get children into my home. And Len was a little bit more like, let's just slow this down a little bit. Um, which in hindsight, I can now see as us not being on the same page. And that actually marked, mm-hmm. marked our infertility journey for a good year, probably, of us not being on the same page. Um, so we kind of started doing some stuff in tandem. Um, we started having some conversations with the Children's Aid Society about fostering or respite fostering at the same time as we were on a wait list for the fertility clinic. So while we were on that wait time, um, we started talking with the foster people and decided and to be honest I decided Len was never fully on board with that idea so that's not wise (laughs) um (laughs) I can I can own that now it's been a long time ago um and so we pursued that and then we got into the clinic so we of course did the additional test and because we were doing it in tandem When we ended up meeting with our social worker for foster care, she basically said, I'm not going to approve this until you're sort of not having this split focus between being at the clinic and wanting to foster. I don't think it's going to benefit you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of got a hard no on the fostering um, just because we were we were also pursuing trying to get pregnant at the clinic. And um, that was a huge disappointment for me. And so we kind of just put our energies into being at the clinic and trying to sort out what we felt comfortable with there. Um, 
And so I was not ovulating. So their first step was to uh, explore Clomid. And so I did one round of Clomid. And I was not allowed to do that again for a number of reasons. <laughs> uh, Len said if I went on that pill again, he would leave the country. Oh no! Yeah. Oh, so you're one. You're one of the ones that the crazy side effect. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I was just filled with this uncontrollable rage. Oh my goodness! It was. I've heard. I've heard stories. Yeah, it was, and it and it was almost out of body experience kind of rage where mm -hmm. I could the rational part of my mind could see myself, and I was honestly thinking, "Who is this person?" And what is wrong with her? And my husband was literally like, we are not doing that again. But <laughs> medically speaking, I had visual side effects, which mm -hmm. is rare with Clomid, um, but is uh, it is a listed side effect. Um, so I had this extreme sensitivity to light to the point that even if I was inside, I had to wear sunglasses. Oh. And as soon as the clinic heard about that, they said they basically cut us off and said, you cannot be on that again. Um, I didn't respond hormonally to it. I did not ovulate. So the only option would have been to go up to a higher dose of Clomid and try it again. But because I had those visual side effects, um, <clears throat> they said very clearly, you can't do this. So that basically left us with um, injectables. And again, Len and I were not completely on the same page at this point. And he was like, well, let's just do it. Let's just power through. And I'm like, I can't. I... One cycle on an oral med was one thing, but this whole injectable thing, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go crazy. Mm. And so we agreed to just take a break. Um, and this was probably, this is probably at the beginning of 2000. <clears throat> no, this is probably at the end of 2006. So we were, we were almost three years in at this point um, of trying to start a family. And so we decided to take a break and that was a very good time for us. We were just able to, well, I mean, as much as you're able to set it down, right? Um, you never really, you still have that cycle of no. up and down yeah. and, well, maybe it'll just happen naturally and maybe, um, maybe it'll just be a miracle. Um, so sort of happening in the background of all the infertility stuff between 2005 and 2007, my husband started experiencing chronic pain. And it started off fairly mild um, to the point that he was mostly able to ignore it. and He really didn't think too much of it. And by the time 2007 rolled around, we were we had sort of stepped off active treatment for infertility. And we're at doctors for a different reason, trying to figure out why his pain was so bad and why there wasn't anything that seemed to be able to touch it. And then at the end of 2007, which is kind of around the time I think we had started considering walking down the road of adoption, um, we finally got an MRI and um, found the cause for his pain was two tumors 
um, in his neck at C1 and C2, which led to an additional diagnosis of um, something called neurofibromatosis, which is a genetic disorder that he was born with. And so that sort of started to play into effect. I remember very distinctly at one point doing as much research as I could to figure out whether that would impact our ability to adopt. And I, I, I mm-hmm. laugh a little bit at that because it, it, it's such a naive thing for me to think because it wouldn't have. And I even emailed the social worker and she said, of course not, it, it'll be fine. But at that time, you know, facing this enormous diagnosis, my initial thought was, okay, but we can still be a family, right? Like we can still, <laughs> we can still go on and we can still have children. It shows how one track your mind oh, very is much. at that moment. Like nothing, nothing else no, matters. Just give me the babies and uh, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. We'll figure yeah, out exactly. Um, anyway, so he had to have surgery in 2007, and we were hoping that that was going to, well, we were hoping that was going to take care of his pain, but it did not. So in spring of 2008, he had healed from his surgery. He was still, he was back at work again. Um, the pain was still there, um, and we were still sort of wrapping our minds around the idea of what it meant for him to have um neurofibromatosis and what that was going to mean long term. And so in the spring of 2008, we decided to just do a little weekend getaway to Niagara Falls. And at one point, um, I was sitting in Starbucks by myself, and I can remember it very clearly. And I remember having this moment of thinking, what if this is it? Like, what if this is what it looks like? What if there aren't going to be children? What does the future look like if there are no children? And I remember very clearly in that space and in that moment, not being afraid of it and realizing that I needed to talk to Len about this, that we needed to actually discuss the idea of what if this life of ours does not include children. And so on the drive home from that weekend, we had a conversation and we had just been on the verge of sort of restarting the adoption process, getting our home study done. And we both kind of looked at each other and said, you know what, I think we need to take a step back and really, you know, pray and ask some really hard questions. So we decided on the drive home that we were going to take a week separately to pray about it. And we weren't going to discuss it at all during that week. We were just going to individually um, lay it before the Lord and um, come back together after a week and see where we felt that we were. And so we came back together after a week and I said, all right, so what do you feel like? we are supposed to do like what do you after our week of praying what do you feel like we're supposed to do and he says I think we're supposed to stop and I took a deep breath and I said I think we're supposed to stop also Mm. so what was that I mean because we've had moments like that where I mean you went from (laughs) my husband has a 
disease that he's been living with since birth who cares let's does this affect mm-hmm. kids like you went from so focused so laser mm-hmm. focused to i'm trying all the things i don't you know everything can be going on at once spinning all the plates to i think we should stop like what how did you feel in that moment when you both said that and you were both like oh my gosh we're on the same page and we both think we should stop striving um strangely at peace yeah yeah um, there was something about being on the same page that was astonishingly peaceful. And yet at the same time, I think there was a part of my heart that was like, we're just stopping for now. I don't think in that moment I realized that we would be stopping forever. I don't think in that moment we were sort of stepping off the path to parenthood completely. I think we were just sort of taking a detour and we were saying, okay, we're just going to, we're going we're gonna to stop for now. I honestly assumed mm-hmm. at some point down the road that we would get a green light from the Lord and we would pursue adoption and there would be children in our house. Um, I don't know that I harbored that hope with any sort of determination. I think that just sort of lingered there in the way that it needs to. Um, mm-hmm. Because we have this desire, and it's not a wrong desire. Um, there's something really beautiful about desiring children and wanting to uh, grow a family and raise children in the fear of the Lord. Like, that's a beautiful desire. And and so I, I don't think I felt like I was, um, I don't think I was laying that down completely at that point, but at the same time, sort of stepping onto this side road of saying, okay, this is going to be us not just taking a break, but evaluating what life could look like if, if the road never leads back to that path to parenthood, you know? Well, I feel like... For, for me, when I, when we've had those conversations, it's almost like physically your body's in this posture of just leaning forward and just like, you're just, you're just on, on ready and on, on alert all the time. And then whenever that moment happens where you're like, okay, we're going to, it's, it's, it's literally like you're putting your body at rest and, and you, your shoulders mm-hmm. relax. And even though, like, like you said, there's still that place where that's lingering and it's in the right place, but it's not. I don't know. It's just, you're, you're, you're not physically just pushing, 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 pushing. It's just, it's a, it's really is a beautiful piece and it doesn't make sense, but it, you can definitely, it's feel how it affects every part of your life and your body and your heart and your mind when you can get to that. Absolutely. It's that piece that passes understanding, right? Like it's not just, it's not something we work in ourselves, which is I think what makes it even more beautiful. Right. And so we kind of spent the next two years yeah, just focusing on Len's pain management and his his overall health. I ended up becoming the breadwinner during that period because his uh, his employer uh, let him go because he was missing too much time. And so, in the midst of that, I, I was struggling with being like a breadwinner. Here I was going. Here I had gone from wanting to be a stay at home mom and ending up being the breadwinner. <laughs> um which was fine. I was happy to do it. Um, it was, it was what we needed to do. It gave Len the opportunity to go back to school and get certified in, um, 
something a little less physically demanding. But at the same time, I think I was processing what it meant to not go back to pursuing parenthood. And I think in some ways that was a harder grief and a bigger struggle for me than sort of those first 18 months where we were wrestling with this idea of why isn't this happening and why does it seem to happen to everyone around us and am I broken? Am I going to be a terrible mother and that's why this isn't happening and all those sorts of questions that we ask ourselves as infertile women and then I sort of launched into this whole new series of questions of who am I as a woman if I am not a mother and who am I in the church in the body of Christ if I am not a mother what does that look like where does my value land? How do I reframe that? And so that was a huge emotional road to travel. That in, and in some ways, I think it's safe to say that there were moments in that that felt harder than those initial days at the clinic or being turned down for fostering or getting another negative pregnancy test after that eternal three-minute wait, staring at the oven clock. I, I kind of went radio silent during that time because I felt like I was processing something that made no sense to anybody else. You've said before, there, the way that I came across you was actually you sent me a, your story through the website and you, I think the first line was that you are one of the 5% of couples that will never have children. And it just, it struck me so so hard. And so I just kept reading. Um, so you say that you guys are the 5% of couples that will never have children. Yes. Um, and that's where you guys have landed up to this. You know, we started this in 2004. Do you ever get pushback about that? Like you're giving up or you don't have enough faith or, you know, the things that people say Oh yes, to us women. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, when you're in the middle of it, and um, I think Sometimes people who haven't walked the road of infertility, they um, they look at us and they think that we're just desperate and we're going to do anything. And they because they haven't walked that road and they haven't experienced that particular grief, um, they'll off, you know, you'll hear things like, well, maybe it isn't meant to be or maybe you're not meant to be parents or maybe God has something else planned for you. And it's very, well, it's very dismissive, basically, is what it is. And yet, when we came sort of to the other side and we started saying, you know what, we are not sure if the Lord wants us to have children. And so for now, we are just embracing life as a family of two. The dialogue immediately changed. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, but you shouldn't give up don't give up hope. You don't know what could happen. Um, it was really, really interesting. Um, and then I would start getting all these oh, stories so about, well, I know so-and-so and they waited four years and then just like that, or they waited seven years. I, I think the longest period of time we got was 14. Um, and so there was a point where I would, you know, 
we'd mm-hmm. get to those anniversaries and I would sort of do a mental check in my brain of, okay, so it's not after seven and it's not after 11 and it's not after 14. Um, but yeah, we absolutely that's got that not, pushback and, and, the, and the don't give up hope mm. was enormous. Um, that message that came through from many, many people where they thought that we were just like throwing in the towel. And there was a part of me where I was like, if you knew the work that it came <laughs> to get to this place, you would understand that there is no giving up here. That this is a this is an active choice to embrace the family that we became when we said I do. And no, that's not an active choice that many people are gonna have to make. But yeah, it was it was in no way a giving up because if it was, I think it might have been easier if it was just throwing up our hands and saying, whatever, this doesn't seem to be working, as opposed to um, bringing ourselves to a point where, yeah, we were able to receive that that different kind of miracle that looked completely other than what we had hoped and dreamed for. And I want you to talk about that miracle, but I think it's, I think I want to point out something that you said, and I had a conversation with a girl this week who submitted her story through the website again, and I think it's easy to think in the beginning stages, I think especially in the beginning stages of infertility, but also from looking at it on the outside, looking in towards people that are mm-hmm. walking this road, mm-hmm. um, is that you can make it happen if you try hard enough. And so it's one thing like treatments are first, like we're going to try all the treatments and we mm-hmm. can make this happen. And I think when you're, especially in the beginning, you struggle with those questions of like, yeah, but is this taking this out of God's hands? Mm-hmm. And are we trying to make something happen that's not his will? And then the adoption thing, it's the same question. It is the same thing. Like, is this, we can make this happen. Literally all we have to do is start this, start this paperwork, get this home study, and then we will have a baby in our Mm -hmm. home. But is it God's will? And I think it's important to note that you guys did all that. You did the treatments, you did the fostering, you did the adoption, but yet it still didn't happen. And that's because God's hand is still in all of it. Even when we're pushing and we're, and we're, and we're trying to make it happen on our own. Absolutely. Yes. Pray about it. Make sure he's in the middle of every decision that you make as a couple, make sure you're on the same page. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it is still God's hand, just like it is his hand when we naturally conceive and we're surprised by that pregnancy test after we're two days late. He's in that, but he's also in every every child that comes in your home, whether it's through Absolutely. adoption, fostering, or treatments. He has to have a hand in that because he's in control of every part of this world. And so, I think it's mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to note that. Well, and it's interesting. Just on that note, um, is when I talk about adoption and how I I never talk about it being a closed door, um, because I don't think it is. I honestly see it. If I visualize it in my mind, um, there was a period of time where I sat in front of a very open door where I could have pushed through and I could have done all the things to bring us close, as close as humanly possible to um, adopting a child. And yet, if I see back in that time, it's me sitting in front of an open door with a red light open and God quite saying, I'm asking you not to walk through this. I'm asking you to let go of all the things that you think you can do to make this happen. And I'm asking you to just leave that door open and trust me that you're not supposed to walk through it. And 
I'll be honest and say that 15 years later, there are still moments where I sit myself down in front of that open door and I wonder, what would it have been like if I had walked through? And that red light isn't gone. There's a tiny part of me that is like, maybe when I'm 50, I'll get to adopt a teenager. Um, But at this point, and it was then and it is now, it's an open door, but it is a red light over it. And it is the Lord quietly saying, I'm asking you to just put down all the things you could do and just trust me on this. Mm. And I think that that was one of the hardest parts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of times we hit those mm-hmm. with, well, you hear a lot of stories about people hitting that with treatments. Yeah. Treatment's always an, op- an open door. You got the money, you got the time, you can walk through those doors, but sometimes there is a red light over it. And you, that's that's where it matters that God is in every decision because you can Absolutely. spend and treat and work yourself into a mess if he's not in the middle of it with you. Um so just really seek him on those questions. But you mentioned earlier that you have received a miracle, but it's just not what you thought it would be. So tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, I had pushback on this idea as well. At the beginning of any infertility journey, um, an end result of no children is kind of the worst case scenario. And I can complete, I can clearly remember thinking um, several times that I was going to be a mom. I, you know, I was going to make it happen. It was going to it was going to be, maybe I wouldn't give birth to that child, but I was going to be a mother. And I think part of that is just this determination that we have to get through the physical aspects of infertility, getting through the physical tests and getting through the procedures. And if you're pursuing adoption, getting through those home study questions and all this work that needs to go into having a child. But I also think that there's this, um, on my part, at least there's just this belligerent refusal to accept anything other than a child from the Lord. Um, That was my picture of what my life and my family was going to be. And I was kind of, in many aspects, just waiting for God to catch up and, um, and asking him to please get on board (laughs) With, with what I wanted for our future, I think at the, at the beginning, and, and it certainly was true for me when we had decided to sort of step off the road and stop everything. There's this knee-jerk reaction when you try to envision a ch- future without children that is just, no, 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 I'm not going to accept that as the possible outcome. It probably took me about 18 months to sort of come out on the other side. I actually wrote a uh, blog series on it um, after it. It's on my blog. It's um, under a series called The Gap. And after I came out of that, I realized that peace that I felt and the healing that I felt and the fact that I was able to sort of look into an unknown future with sort of the assumption that there would not be kids and be okay with it. And that's what I call our miracle, because if you go from this mental state of I am going to be a mother, that is the plan. Uh, Any other outcome is unacceptable. And then to reach this place where you are just so thankful for the life that you have been given, um, where you've been given the ability to embrace that life, 
to find joy in that life, to find healing from the grief and the sorrow of infertility, of the dreams that you give up, that you lose, that naivety that you lose in the, in the midst of infertility. And to come out on the other side and say, this too is a good gift from God. That's why I call it a miracle. Because I would not have wrought that on my own. I would have not have reached that space. I would not have reached that healing in and of myself. So that's where you, that's kind of like your, your foundation that you stand on. But how does how does it, how does the negativity or the, the, still the lack of, does it come up every now and then? Does it, does it, you know, flare its head every now and then of like, yeah, but you could still, or what if, um, does it still affect you even though you're settled and, and grateful for where you are? Well, I mean, medically speaking, we're still infertile. Um, it's not as if we could be look at each other tomorrow and be like, ah, why, why not? Let's have a baby. Um, (laughs) So medically speaking, it's still a reality. Um, I won't pretend like there aren't days where it doesn't still impact me, where it doesn't catch me by surprise. Um, mm-hmm. Just the other night, actually, my my husband and I were having a conversation. He's a uh, a collector of stamps and coins, and we um, had a little conversation about if you pass away one day and... Um, and I'm still here, who do you want to inherit those things? Who is going to get your stamps and who is going to get your coins? And the only reason we're having that conversation is because we there isn't that automatic default of a child. Right. And so there's certainly moments where, and I actually wrote a blog post about this too, sorry to, but just that idea that when when you're walking the road of infertility, you're not just saying, You're not just hearing no potentially to a baby, but to a Mm -hmm. lifetime of everything that's involved with having children. First days of school and getting them off to college and weddings and grandchildren and visits by kids at the right and someone to take over dad's stamp set and coin collection. And so for sure, there are apps and there will be a lifetime of those moments where we're like, okay, so this looks different because we do not have children. And there's Mm -hmm. that grief lingers, right? And that's okay. It's allowed to linger. Um, It's allowed to remain there. Uh, I I never want to be callous about the fact that we don't have children um, because we did desire for it to be otherwise. And I never want to stand in this space and be like, ah, whatever, you know, kids, schmids. Yeah. Right. Cause it was, it was never like that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And for me, I, I kind of give myself once a year where I'm allowed to just invite that grief in and let it linger and let some tears fall. And I do that at Easter because for some reason I am unable to go into a department store and look at little girl Easter dresses without my heart breaking. So that's just become a bit of a ritual for me. I will go in and I will choose the dress that my would-be daughter, who for some reason is always three or four, (laughs) even though realistically (laughs) uh, she'd probably be like 13 or 14 by now and would 
not be yeah but their dresses are i know (laughs) so i always pick like a three-year-old four-year-old um beautiful easter dress and i just stand in the store and i have my little moment and then i go get myself a coffee and i go home and that's my moment where i'm just like this is a lingering sadness and that's okay it doesn't mean that i haven't been richly blessed And it doesn't mean that I have not been given immensely beautiful gifts from my Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father. And it's okay that it still hurts a little bit. That's okay. So what do you tell the women that you come across who are still in the middle of maybe the beginning stages of their infertility or still in that really early stage of pushing and striving? What What would you tell them over coffee? I... Uh, my my first thing is always that you're not alone. You're not doing this alone. Um, you are not going crazy. I know that there are times when everything that you're feeling makes you think that you are slowly going crazy, but you're not. You are just going through an exceedingly difficult thing. And I never tell them, like, I think that sometimes women going through the early stages of infertility they don't come to me initially um I think partly because I think they imagine I'm going to tell them that my ending is their ending and that's not how I feel at all um I don't know what their story is I don't know where they'll end up I don't know if they'll walk you know this beautiful journey of pregnancy and being able to give birth and doing all of these Um, things like nursing and uh, things like that or whether they will foster whether they'll adopt I don't know what their story is and I always tell them that also but I also make sure that they know that just because I have landed in this space that this is where we ended up it doesn't mean that that's where they'll end up either and I think in the early stages they need to hear that I think they need to know that there is this space to hold on to hope that there will be children. And I try to make room for that because we are in the 5%. We are in a very small group of people who will not have children. And so by default, in some ways, 95% of the couples going through infertility will have children, um, whether that's naturally or biologically or through some form of adoption. Um, I, I think I kind of compare it to walking with a pebble in my shoe. Infertility doesn't affect me in the day-to-day the way it used to when we were in the midst of it. And yet, there's still that pebble in my shoe, and every once in a while it shifts, and it rubs the wrong way, mm-hmm. or it presses hard on an old bruise. And I will never forget that pain. In many ways, I still harbor that pain within me. It is not fresh and raw, but it still lingers. And I still understand what it means to stand in a room full of mothers and have empty arms. Um, And so I would always want people to know, I understand. I know we ended up in a place that right now to you where you're standing looks like the worst case scenario. And I understand that. Right. But you are not alone, and I have not forgotten. And I think I think one of the things that really shifted 
our journey for us was two, well, it was probably two things. Um, I think I would want to caution about making God the object of our anger. And I think there's a place for anger. I think anger is a natural part of that grief cycle. Um, but I, and, and I think God is absolutely big enough to handle our anger. I think when we run into danger is when we make him the object of our anger. Because when he becomes the object of our anger, he can no longer be the source of our comfort and our hope and our joy. Because we will not go to the one we are angry at for those things. If you're in the middle of a fight with someone and you've just had a yelling match, you're not then going right back to them and saying, hey, can you hold me now? I'm just hurting. And so I think that if we can walk with caution in that, if we can bring our anger to him and say, Lord, I am so confused by my circumstances and I don't understand why this is happening. And then in that same moment, allow him to comfort us and allow him to be our source of strength and our source of hope. And then the other thing was um, my father sent me an article back in the days when you couldn't email articles. You had to physically put them in the mail. Dating myself a little bit here. <laughs> Um, and it was a woman, I think she was single and she, she wrote this article about how, um, God gives good gifts to all his children. They just don't always look the same. And that was really eye opening to me because what I wanted was the good gifts he was giving to other people. I wanted the baby and I wanted right. the, the, the pregnant belly and I wanted the stroller at the mall. And um, I wanted that 3 a.m. wake-up call and Cheerios stuck in my hair. And that was the only good gift that I could imagine him giving me. And after I read that article that my father sent me, I remember praying very defiantly and a little bit angrily, <laughs> okay, fine, if you are giving me good gifts, open my eyes to see them. And boy, did he ever. It was astonishing and overwhelming. And it shifted something within me um, profoundly. Because he didn't, it's, it's like he didn't even hesitate. I woke up the next day and it was as if I was being fired with this brand new awareness of all these amazing things that he was giving me. Moments of joy with my husband and real conversations at my work and beauty on my drive home from work and all of these things that I had had my eyes closed to simply because I was fixated on something. And so I would say to someone in the midst of it that if you are having trouble seeing how much God blesses you and how much he desires to fill your life with an abundance of good and beautiful things, then ask him to open your eyes and he will. He will be so faithful 
in showing you how near he is and and just how much he is giving you, even if it isn't this one thing that you deeply, deeply desire. Well, I think even after having a conversation with you for 60 minutes, um, I feel like one of the gifts that he's given you is some really profound wisdom to share. And I'm just so grateful that you um, sent me that email and that we connected <laughs> and this has happened because I think that you're the message of God's faithfulness and his contentedness that he's given you guys. That's something that we all need more of in our lives. And I think especially in this space, we, we need to hear more of that. So thank you for coming on Thelma. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Today, if your infertility feels like just a pebble, or maybe for you, it feels like a rock in your shoe, I pray Thelma encourage you to ask God to open your eyes to see the good gifts that He's already giving you, not just the good gifts that He's giving to others. Speaking of good gifts, I want to pass along a gift that I just discovered, which is Lisa Turker's latest book, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. If you have not read Lisa's books, do not miss out any longer. I love her. I love her writing. And her latest book walks us through her journey of discovering really the biggest disappointment of her life, but how that disappointment was actually a divine appointment that her soul needed. And no, it is not directly about infertility, but I would definitely categorize infertility as a life-shattering disappointment. And this book will speak life into that hurt, I promise you. So go out, buy it, start reading it, and let me know what you think, either on Instagram or on the website. Just let me know how it's encouraging you and how God is speaking to you through it. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Joy and Infertility Podcast. Isaiah 40, 31 says this, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Remember, God is with you. He sees your heart. He loves you and He is good. There will be beauty born from your journey. Have a great day.